Welcome to the final episode for season one of The Soulful Therapist. It has been a wonderful season. I've really enjoyed sharing so many experiences and stories and theory with you. We are going to be taking a sabbatical to do some exciting things. So stay subscribed because there'll be more on the horizon very, very soon. Today we're going to have a bit of a look at some business theory. I'm Anne-Marie, the Soulful Therapist. There are natural, gentle ways to heal, discover yourself and find meaning in the world. Let me introduce you to them. I'm a psychotherapist, past life therapist, clinical hypnotherapist, master knitter, Reiki master, teacher, author and seer. I specialise in trauma, helping young people and spiritual development. Shall we begin? Sometimes you come across some researchers who are incredibly inspiring. Dr. Catherine Williams came to Adelaide in 2016 and spoke at a positive psychology conference and she presented the findings of her colleague at KRW International. This group of people have been researching business for decades. And one of the most fascinating things that this particular team were looking at in their research is how do we not be that crash and burn person? So I was watching the TV and I was completely shocked. This was a really large Australian company, well-renowned, lots of integrity, great reputation. As Australians, this is one of these companies that we just love. No second thought, we buy their products, we use them, we endorse them, second nature. And I'm watching the CEO of this company blow it up like he'd just thrown a hand grenade over his shoulder. Stock market value of this company just crashed because of the actions he was taking and the stuff that was coming out of his mouth and being broadcast to all of us in Australia. And so the question then becomes, how can an educated, articulate, intelligent man completely crash the value of this well-respected Australian company overnight? We have other examples where there are other companies and they just seem to potter on in the background, doing their job, providing services, keeping people happy, and they make money. They make money for their shareholders, they give people employment, and it all just seems to work. And their stock market value rises and rises and rises. How can we have these two situations coexisting? How is it that some CEOs crash and burn and end up being paid out, usually millions to go away, and other companies that just seem to keep rising and rising and rising. What is the difference here? This was the question I had. So how can we in our own lives not be that crash and burn person? It was 2016 and I was taking a little bit of time out from my clinic work and I was sitting in the science exchange in Adelaide and I was listening to a talk by Dr. Catherine Williams 
and she was reporting on the research of her colleague, Dr. Fred Keel, and he'd invested seven years researching exactly this question. How do we not be that crash and burn person? For his purposes, he was actually looking at the CEOs of top Fortune 500 companies and analysing specifically what does it take to be successful? What does it take to make money? What does it take to save money on disasters like insurance and workers' comp and all those things that add up to business expenses? And it was as I was listening to her reporting upon the research results, I realised that this framework is not exclusive for these business leaders, that if we actually look very carefully at the qualities that Dr. Fred Keel discovered, they are also an excellent framework for ourselves for business, for our relationships, and even raising our children How do we raise our children for success in a world that requires us to have a little bit of business sense? And this is the formula that we're going to be talking about now. So Dr. Fred Keel says that when he was looking at business achievement, he knew that character was important. When he analysed what does it take to be a successful business leader, What he found was that there was this huge fudge factor that all the business skills that we know, you know, being really good with people, being really good with the numbers, all those things were accounted for. But there was this enormous fudge factor that nobody knew what that was actually made up of. So he had a sense that character was really important and that it impacted upon performance. And so this is what he actually researched. His book is called The Return on Character. I highly recommend it. We'll have a link to it in our show notes. So what Dr. Fred Keel discovered is that if you want to become what he calls a virtuoso leader and you might be leading business, you could be leading a family. And the formula for success involves two aspects of our head and two aspects of our heart. In total, that's four qualities, just four qualities that we put into place in life and business. And so at the end of the day, this is an evidence-based framework which will give you business success. But for me, I look at it as a really good way just to know that I'm in right relationship with the world and I'm happy with myself at the end of the day. So let's dive in a little bit more deeply into some of these qualities. Integrity. We talk a lot about integrity. People talk about integrity all the time. I'm not really sure that everybody understands what integrity is. So if we look into the research, integrity in action, in business, what is it? Telling the truth. That's our first one. The second part of that is acting consistently with principles, values and beliefs. It's what we'd often call walking the talk. We know a lot of people who can talk the talk, but can we walk the talk? Standing up for what's right. This is the one that really does put our integrity on the line. When things are going wrong, are we the person that says, that is not going to get us to our outcome? That's not right. 
And of course, usually when we do stand up for things, we've got a lot on the line. And that's where fear comes from. That's why people find it really difficult to stand up. Oftentimes you'll find that the person that does stand up in integrity is the person that's saying what everybody else in the room is actually thinking. Oftentimes we sit in a group in our own consciousness going, hey, this is not quite right. And then as people speak out, oftentimes you'll find if you're in a good cultural group that people around that table will start nodding and go, yes, I thought that too. I thought that too. If we're in a situation where the culture is not supportive of integrity, then we can find that whistleblower result happening where people are ejected from organisations, sometimes even whole countries. <laughs> we've, we've got examples of that too. So the standing up for right uh, is part of integrity. It can be high risk, but it can be hugely transformational for the culture of uh, an organisation and for a family as well. The last aspect of integrity that we want to talk about is about keeping promises. If we are looking at longevity in relationships, if we are looking at you know somebody joining an organisation and being able to make a really wonderful contribution, simply asking them, if you're the one employing, how do you go keeping your promises? This is one of these things that is going to give you a key indicator to people's integrity. People who keep their promises have good relationships. None of us are perfect. Well, if we were perfect, we could keep all of our promises all of the time, but we're human and we're messy and we make mistakes. If you keep your promises most of the time, what that does, it actually creates goodwill. So in those moments when you aren't able to keep your promises, people will forgive. Again, if you're in an agency or a family where that doesn't earn you goodwill and forgiveness because you're human, uh, you've got some questions to ask about your membership in that particular group. Now, if we get all these things right with integrity, if we tell the truth, if we act consistently with our principles, our values and our benefits, if we walk the talk, if we stand up for what's right, and especially if we keep those promises, what it does is it creates a culture of accountability so that we don't need somebody with a big stick standing over the top of us going, you need to do what you need to do. And we don't need somebody standing there with a carrot going, if you do the right thing, you'll get the carrot. If you do these things, what happens is people want to do the right things. I don't know about you, but raising children, that's pretty marvellous. <laughs> so we can start by actually creating this culture underneath the family or the organisation. Let's look now at responsibility. So what is responsibility? Responsibility is about taking responsibility for our personal choices. And when life gets tough, that gets tough as well. It's so much easier at times to go, this happened to me and look around the room for someone to pin it on. In Australia, we call that passing the buck. Uh, it can also be called, let's shoot the messenger. When we look at what needs to happen next, the basic psychology is that 
We can only be responsible for ourselves. We can only change ourselves and we can only take action on behalf of ourselves. All of these are wonderful principles, but gosh, they get messy when we put them into play. There are ways we can do this well, ways we can do it wrong. I know at the moment there is a big push for what they call extreme ownership, uh, and it can be done very, very well where people say, I own this, I am responsible for it, and I will change it by taking action on my behalf. And this is wonderful, except when we are actually cutting off opportunities for joint solutions, when we're so invested in ourselves and our own way of looking at things that we actually don't see that perhaps this solution would be better with a shared shared contribution. So we do need to be careful. Um, Psychology works very much upon the basis of let's all look to ourselves, let's all act on our own best intuition. And let's find our own best solutions. Right now in our society, we are in desperate need for some of these joint solutions where we come together as community and we look at the culture that we are creating and we're searching for those opportunities for like-minded people to come together and make change. So yes, we do take responsibility for our personal choices. If you have anybody in your personal arena who was incredibly fond of blame I have never actually seen blame help anybody arrive at any solutions at the end of your time blaming people um, and it may be you it may be me it could be anybody at the end of the time blaming someone you still need to move through it to the solution blaming can waste an awful lot of time you are much better to the old term from some of the ancient techniques, they talk about kneeling in acceptance. It's incredibly difficult to do if you are suffering and you are hurting, but taking those few moments to just breathe, release, and just mentally coach yourself, uh, I accept exactly where I'm at, and then taking that time to connect with yourself and prompt yourself, what is the way forward? Just giving yourself those moments of stillness. What is the way forward? Sometimes it can take even a few days of saying, I accept where I'm at. Show me the way forward before your intuition starts to inspire you. But what are your choices? You could spend all that time blaming and be no further ahead. Another part of taking responsibility is admitting to your mistakes and failures. Um, Oftentimes when... We make a mistake. I mean, I don't know about you. I get horribly embarrassed. And your ego will quite often want to do the whole ducking and weaving thing. No, I didn't. It wasn't that bad. Um, Maybe I didn't impact on people uh, as much as I thought I did. But strength actually lies in finding the way to admit to yourself and to other people, I did this. There is a better way. Um, What can I do to make amends? When you're very clear about what the impact of your behavior has been, then the remedy appears. Once again, we are shortcutting that time to getting into some good space where we're taking action. Responsibility is also about embracing responsibility for serving others. It's about leaving the world in a better place. 
this is also something that's well needed in the world today. And it makes me feel very heartened when I look at the millennials coming up, the Gen Zs coming up, and they are prompted by this idea of being of service, making a difference. Now, if we get all these things right, if we are taking responsibility for personal choices, if we are admitting our mistakes and failures, very painful but very doable, if we are embracing responsibility for serving others and leaving the world a better place, then what this does is it results in confidence in leaders. Leaders who take the first step, who role model these actions are ones that we can be confident in, whether these are the CEOs of the top Fortune 500 companies or whether it's dad or mum or auntie. Looking now at the aspects of the heart, two aspects of the heart that are part of these character behaviours that help us succeed. Compassion. Compassion is concern for the sufferings or the fortunes of others. Compassion is that ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and get a little bit of a sense of what they're experiencing. When we have compassion for other people and we feel for them, then we strengthen the bond with them. And when people are strengthened, then they can take action. If we are in an organisation and we feel for someone, what we do is we create that culture where people feel loved, valued and supported. People stay in organisations like that. So it's one of the best recruitment strategies you can have is be compassionate to your people. One of the best strategies I discovered working as a rehabilitation counsellor many, many, many years ago is that when people have work-related injuries and someone that they connect with on a daily basis, like the occupational health and safety nurse, calls them within 24 hours and just says, how are you? They come back to work. Uh, they're happier. They're well-connected. It saves on work cover bills. So these are practical strategies as well as touchy-feely strategies. Again, it works in families very much as well. If you have children with disabilities, this particular strategy of having compassion is one of the best ways to get through a day, to strengthen your child and to find the resilience within yourself when times are tough. So compassion, what is it exactly we're talking about? Uh, remembering again that this list that I'm giving you is from these virtuoso business leaders. So what we find is that when people are happy and relaxed, the activity in their brain is in the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the problem-solving part of the brain. When people are stressed, worried, overwhelmed, then all the activity, all the neurological, electrical firing impulses are all in the rear part of the brain, the limbic system, the fight or flight part of the brain. When we have people with activity in that part of the brain, then there's not so many sensible decisions that are going to be made. It's going to be a lot of fight and flight. It's going to be a lot of survival. When we have compassion for people, we're allowing them to rebalance, relax, calm that limbic system and then increase the electrical activity in the front part of the brain. So let's look at what exactly are we talking about? What is the action that goes with compassion? Empathising with others. 
There are different formulas you can read in counselling books as to how you actually go about that. The first thing is actually noticing, just noticing that someone is in a terrible state and then taking action. So I'd like to just share with you a little story about compassion. Spoiler alert, it's actually a little bit sad. But stay with it because this can be an opportunity to learn. I love Adelaide spring times. I love the leaves on the trees. I love the sound of the tram. It's just that peaceful time to relax between home and work. I was just sitting quietly, just letting the thoughts flow through my mind and just taking that little bit of time. And then three seats down, I heard this heart-wrenching sob. It was this huge gasping intake of despair. I couldn't work out where it was coming from. Like, where is it? What is that laughter? Is that cry? What, what is that? And then I heard this voice. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean I'm so sorry. And this voice of despair reverberated through the tram carriage. And the women beside me in the tram were still with their shoulders straight, not looking left, not looking right. And I looked further down the carriage and still people sitting square in their seats. And in the end I saw her and with just a little sideways bob of her head, I could see she was on the phone and there was this gasp again. And then she hurled herself off the tram at the next stop before I could ask her, are you okay? We live in such a public world these days and each place has its own rules. In some countries of the world, you would be late to appointments and it was completely acceptable if you found someone in trouble. You never walked past someone in trouble and you would stop and you would sit with them and you would ask if they were okay and you would offer support. In other places, it's not quite so supportive. It would have been wonderful if the person sitting next to this young woman had just relaxed his shoulders and turned to her and said, can I help you? Are you okay? People can be very, very private. We never really truly know what someone else has going on behind closed doors. And some people do prefer to be private. I like to think some people like the cat under the house. You know how the cat's sick? Cat goes missing, where's the cat? The cat's hiding under the house. <laughs> and some people, they're like that with their emotions. They don't like to be public. They like to and need quiet to rebalance themselves and work out what they need to do with whatever has happened. Life is an up and down journey. We can't be crushing it in life all the time. It's just not realistic. And so many times social media as well presents us with this perception that we should be crushing it all the time. And yet then we find out that some of these people who are our heroes and our mentors and our celebrity, they take action and they leave life because the veneer was not true. So we are in a position every day, whether people accept help or not, is just to notice and to say, can I help? And just see where that actually takes us. 
So compassion is empathising with others. If we're needing the compassion, it's asking for help ourselves. It's empowering others, asking them, what action can you take and what action can I help you with? It's actively caring for others. And where we have an ongoing relationship with people, it's being committed to their development. And if we can package all of this up together, what do we end up with? Well, we end up with collaboration. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the more we get together on the same page with a purpose and an outcome, the more successful we're going to be. And you never know, we might just create some magic. Now the last aspect of the heart. Now this one is my favourite one. It is also the most challenging one as well. This last one, forgiveness, is the single most important quality. None of the other three that we've been talking about can function without forgiveness. So if you go, okay, I'm just going to reflex back to one, what would it be? And it's forgiveness. Now, we wouldn't want to do that, of course, because, of course, without integrity and responsibility and compassion, we've pretty well emptied out our toolbox. We really do want all of these things in our toolbox. But forgiveness, and it's the one that we struggle with the most, is the most important of all. Quite often, organisations impose a system and a structure on people. This is particularly so if you work in any government organisations. Early in my university, I heard all about the Bell's Curve. And the Bell's Curve is really a way of describing people and organisations and decisions. It literally looks like a bell. And if we look at that bell, if, for example, I use the example of, am I going to get along with everybody at work? The Bell's Curve really describes the answers. So we will find that there will be 2 to 3% of people who absolutely love and adore us and we can do no wrong. And if we do do wrong, oh, it's always forgivable and there'll be a reason why. These people are completely one-eyed in our favour. There will also be, at the other end of the spectrum, Two to three people that just do not like us at all. These are the people that you struggle with, the people that will always be predisposed to seeing what you're doing in a completely negative way. And then in the middle of the graph is everybody else. And they are willing to be convinced by your character, by your behavior and your actions. These are the people that you influence through who you are and how you work in the world. They are also the people that you can run across and make mistakes and end up in a conflict with as well. And I did end up a few years ago in exactly one of these situations where someone who had no predisposition towards me because of the system we were working in, we ended up clashing. Because of the management decisions about how the work needed to happen, we ended up clashing. And she taught me something incredibly important. This is not someone that I would have gone for coffee with, not someone I had a lot in common with, not someone that I was naturally drawn to or felt warm towards. 
Brian Weiss, in his book, Many Lives, Many Masters, says that we must also go to those people we are not drawn to. We must also go to those people we are dissimilar to. So here I was sitting in the staff coffee room and I had my knickers in a twist. How could she do that? She's done that on purpose. I don't like her anyway. She's out to get me. There was a lot of rhetoric that was revolving through my head. There had been a decision that had been made and I had been sidelined and she'd ended up with uh, work that was meaningful and important and had been important to me. And she came looking for me and she said, we are not on the same page. What do we need to do to clear the air? And it was such a relief to have her ask that question. So we sat and we talked it through. And I was very grown up, I must say. (laughs) So I didn't splurt out all the things that were immediately in my head, (laughs) which was a whole heap of judgment. Judgment is not really going to get anybody anywhere. But I did say, look, The way that this happened, the process by which it occurred, you know, I was sidelined. And she acknowledged it. Yes, you were. And so we were then in a position where we could decide how we could go forward. So how does this story actually relate to forgiveness? If we hold on to anger and resentment, if we hang on to I am right, They are wrong. They have victimized me. That keeps you stuck. What gets you out is the forgiveness. What gets you out is an understanding of the bigger picture and being prepared to say, I forgive you, I forgive myself, and I hold back no unforgiveness. Once upon a time, many years ago, I came across a book called Radical Forgiveness. It's based upon Buddhist principles. We do not forgive other people for them. We forgive other people for ourselves. One of my beautiful former students in youth work, and we were talking about some uh, trauma that he'd experienced growing up. And I said to him, how did you move to this headset of forgiveness How did you forgive the people that did this? And of course, they were family. It's even harder. And he said, Amory, what is the point of drinking the poison and expecting somebody else to drop dead? He said, I'm only poisoning myself. And it's the wisest thing I've ever heard anyone say. And this is what forgiveness really is about. It's about letting go of our mistakes, letting go of other people's mistakes, If we truly are in an environment where people are determinedly and deliberately toxic, then, of course, we've got to make some decisions about whether we stay there or not. But it doesn't change whether we decide to forgive or not. Now, there'll be some people listening to that will go, this is outrageous, Anne-Marie. How on earth can you say this? Sometimes people do things that are absolutely unforgivable. Some people truly do deserve the death penalty. That's where it stands. I don't know, but I've worked with a lot of people who have had really evil enacted upon them. And as we gently go down that healing journey, there comes a time at which forgiveness not only becomes important, but necessary to transform ourselves to be more capable 
and take that next step. And in almost every case, people will say to me, do you know what? If I could have chosen that not to happen, I wouldn't because in forgiving and transforming, I am so much bigger than I would have been otherwise. So if we let go of someone else's mistakes, if we let go of our own mistakes, if we focus on what's right without ignoring what's wrong, we end up with innovation. We end up in a completely creative space where anything is possible. So what I'm really, really hoping for is that you take this incredible framework and be really inventive with it. We've got these amazing qualities, the qualities of the head, which is integrity and responsibility, and these qualities of the heart, compassion and especially forgiveness. And I'd like you to go and play with them. The research suggests that business leaders, virtuoso leaders that use these qualities make five times the return on investment. What can that do for you and for me if we put these into play? Take them home, stick it on the wall. I've got it stuck in the toilet. (laughs) You can put it at the breakfast table. Have a talk with your children. Use it to guide how you relate to the young ones under 12. Have conversations with your teenagers about these are really great business principles. How can we put these into play? How can you put them into play at the beginning of your working career? Take them to work. Discuss them at staff meetings. Use it to frame your business as an entrepreneur and I wish you all the best with it. So I hope you've really enjoyed this season. I have had the most wonderful time uh, creating these podcast episodes for you. So if you like this episode, we're going to be doing this and more uh, when we come back for our next episodes for season two. Uh, and particularly exploring how we can use some ancient techniques for our modern day life, business, home, everything you want to be great at. Stay subscribed and we'll talk soon. See you next time.